and welcome to CCBJ Perspectives, where we provide access to leaders and influencers within the ever-evolving ecosystem of lawyers and legal professionals. So Mark and Peter, thank you so much for joining us here today. We really are looking forward to this discussion. I think we should start off with you just telling us a little bit about your respective roles with Barnes and Thornburg. Sure, great. And thanks for having us. Mark and I are excited to talk with you today about the, the COVID litigation tracker. So my name is Pete Wozniak. I am a partner in the Barnes and Thornburg Chicago office. Uh, I'm in the, the Labor and Employment Department. And my practice, I specialize in workplace class and collective actions across the country. So uh, sort of complex litigation where numerous employees get together and sue their employers. That's my, my specialty within the group. Uh, and I'm also part of the wage and hour practice group at Barnes and Thornburg. Uh, and that's the group that's putting out this workplace litigation tracker. And thanks, Kristen. Uh, my name is Mark Wallen, and I am of counsel in the Chicago office of Barnes and Thornburg. I'm also licensed in California and Minnesota, so I have you know, triple officing, I guess, in our Minneapolis office as well as our Los Angeles office. Uh, and like Pete, I also specialize, so to speak, in the complex workplace class and collective actions, which you know mostly focus in the wage and hour area, but we also do the complex discrimination litigation as well. So that, that's just a little bit of background, I guess, on, on my practice. And Mark and I have practiced together for a number of years. We were, worked together on a team that specialized in workplace class and collective actions at a prior firm, uh, and now we're continuing to do that uh, here at Barnes & Thornburg. That's terrific. Well, thank you both for being here again. I understand that your firm has developed a workplace litigation tracker. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired this and how it works? Absolutely. So yeah, we are part of a team. Uh, we, we lead the team that puts out what we call it the Wage and Hour Practice Group COVID-related litigation tracker. So the focus of the tracker is to look at nationwide lawsuits that are being filed, workplace lawsuits that are being filed by employees against their employers that involve COVID-19. So we realized early on in the heady days of the pandemic, particularly as employment law litigators, that employers were going to need to understand what was happening. Our firm did a, a substantial amount of education and thought leadership on regulations and all of the things that were coming out of local, state, and federal government in response to COVID-19. Um, and we were looking at litigation that was happening, and we thought we needed to have a clearinghouse where people could get a good idea of what was happening in the litigation space, because we sort of see you can see litigation as a barometer for what's happening, and it's a way to educate employers uh, and clients uh, about what other employers are running into and, and being alleged to have done and how they're reacting to COVID and what we're seeing across the country to hopefully educate people so that, that, that employers can make sure that they don't run into the same sorts of issues. It's also a way to, uh, to tell what, what is mattering, what's, what are gaining traction, what sort of areas uh, employers need to watch out for, particularly within uh, workplace litigation. So what we decided to do was, was and it, it's, it's a pretty it's a pretty daunting task because it's a big country and there's a lot of litigation that gets filed. So the way the tracker works from a nuts and bolts perspective is that every day we get sort of uh, dingers based on a, a word search from services that go out and look at all of the lawsuits that are filed across the country. And we look at those, the, the, those alerts. And then if things look like they involve uh, COVID-19 in a way that it makes sense to, to put them on the tracker or to catalog them um, as a useful, a useful case or something that employers would want to know about, we then go out and get the complaints. And then we have a team of authors at Barnes & Thornburg, practitioners in this area, who summarize what the complaint alleges or alleges to have happened. What we do is we categorize those complaints based on, I think there's about 12 categories uh, on the tracker. 
so that employers can quickly look at sort of the areas that they're most interested in or the things that most impact them. And we look at the complaints and we figure out what they're alleged to have happened. And from there, we can sort of look at trends and things that we're seeing in terms of what people are alleging to have happened. And that's an important thing to remember is that the purpose for us, for the tracker, is to focus on what is being alleged by the plaintiff. So we had seen in the market some other, other sort of quantitative analysis, so just raw numbers to things that were happening. But we didn't see that as quite as useful for employers because that doesn't really tell you a lot about the nuts and bolts of what was happening or alleged to have happened in, in litigation. So our authors go and look at the complaint to determine what the, the plaintiff or plaintiffs alleged to have happened. And that's what we're summarizing on the tracker is what the, what the, 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 the alleged fact pattern so that employers can see um, what's happening. And just to add to that, you know, I, I remember we were sitting in a wage and hour practice group meeting. I, I, I want to say it was in early March. And, you know, during those meetings, we, we like to talk about what the different trends are that, you know, we need to advise clients of. And obviously, this is around the time when COVID was really exploding across the country. And, you know, one of the buzzwords these days is disruption. And clearly, it seemed like COVID-19 was uh, going to disrupt employment across the country. And so we, we thought this would be an interesting and a unique way to be able to see how that happens in real time. And, you know, while we've seen some other firms do similar things, a lot of times it, it's just taken in the aggregate and doesn't detail the different complaints that are coming out the, the way we have been doing it. So we thought that would be a particularly helpful um, and insightful for clients and employers across the country. And the other thing that we do is that uh, on a monthly basis, we're giving, we're presenting a webinar, so it's free to for employers or anyone else to join and, and to sort of give a you know month by month update on what we're seeing in terms of the trend and sort of practical guidance for what that leads us to conclude about what employers should or should be doing and, and what they can see within these sort of these mini trends that we're seeing with regard to COVID litigation specifically. And then occasionally, if we see a new trend emerging uh, or we see a trend that is becoming more prevalent, or if there's a particularly uh, illustrative or interesting case that we think employers would be interested to know about, we'll put out a blog post highlighting that particular case or that particular area. Um, and then, you know, obviously employers can refer to the, the tracker anytime they want. We do a, a weekly update of that COVID litigation tracker. I think at this point, there are about 555 cases summarized on the tracker. So employers can go and look and, and see sort of the trends they can see it geographically, chronologically, and then by sort of case area and, and can peruse that to see what sorts of things are happening, maybe in their industry, maybe in their area, et cetera, to get a sense of, of uh, the sort of do's and don'ts that we're able to divine from what we're seeing in terms of litigation. Wow, this sounds like an enormous undertaking that you've brought to the firm and amazing, I have to say. So tell us a little bit about some of the trends that you are seeing recently. Certainly. So as I said, we divide the tracker into I believe it's about 12 categories. One of the categories is sort of the wrongful termination, discrimination, uh, and bias category. And that sounds like a big tent because it is. And, and part of the reason for that is each summary, each case summary, has to be in, in only one category. There's some limitation of computers or coding that I don't pretend to understand. But the cases that we see typically involve multiple matters. And there's a lot of overlap between the causes of action. So especially within this sort of this broader category, it's difficult to just select one. So we have a broader tent. So in this area, we're seeing a number of sort of trends within that category. So within that, one of the things that we're seeing, I mean, obviously, and, and this is sort of, I think, understandable to everybody, workplace safety, and, and that's another trend that we'll talk about, but workplace safety is in the forefront of employees' minds. 
And one trend we're seeing within this sort of wrongful termination category are sort of fact patterns alleging that an employer either had an insufficient or improper response with regard to workplace safety. So, for example, not insisting on, on social distancing, not putting in safety measures, uh, not insisting on PPE being worn, uh, et cetera. And then within these complaints sort of alleging that uh, an employee allegedly complained or, or made comments about the workplace safety measures that the employer did or did not take and then being terminated in response for that. So it's sort of a, a crossover, sort of a pseudo whistleblower kind of species of claim. And whistleblower is another category where it's you know, specifically brought within a whistleblowing statute or those sort of statutory paradigms. But we're seeing a lot of these cases where employees either complain about workplace safety or uh, employees request or insist on uh, accommodations or additional safety measures and then allege that as a result, they're, they're wrongfully terminated uh, in response to those complaints. And then another trend that we're seeing in this area, which is sort of dovetails from that, is the wrongful termination based upon, you know, uh, some sort of immutable characteristics such as, uh, I think, disability and age are, are the two uh, that we're seeing quite a bit of. And in those cases, uh, typically how they play out is that uh, the employer will implement some sort of a, a layoff or furlough, uh, something of that nature, which will either disproportionately affect individuals over a certain age or individuals with a particular disability. Um, obviously, the allegations are that the pretext is COVID, but the actual violation here, the actual issue is that they're being furloughed or being laid off as a result of, of their age, and they're being disproportionately affected by that. Another common scenario you see is with these layoffs or furloughs, um, oftentimes, even if they do affect the entire employee population, those in the protected categories are, are not brought back to work, whereas you know, younger people and non-disabled people, for example, uh, are being brought back. Uh, the older and the allegedly disabled individuals uh, are being permanently terminated or, or permanently laid off. So that's another area, that's another trend that we, we've seen quite a bit of in the last couple of months. Right. And, and within sort of that the discriminatory framework. We're also seeing, Mark mentioned, uh, with regard to disabilities, we're, we're seeing allegations where particular individuals, for whatever reason, uh, were uh, at high risk, either for contracting COVID or for having poorer outcomes if they were to contract COVID, uh, and alleging that they are being discriminated against in the workplace or being wrongfully terminated with regard to uh, their disability. So people who are, are alleging that they're not being accommodated uh, in the way they're re requesting, whether it be by remote work or uh, adjusted schedules or, or you know, those sorts of things, alleging that they're being discriminated against based on their disability with regard to workplace safety aspects of the day-to-day -day work experience. But, you know, this wrongful termination, this discrimination bias category of the categories that we've, we've listed on the tracker is the biggest every week. That's the biggest one. But then we're also seeing um, quite a few uh, cases being brought now, and it's the second biggest category, uh, cases implicating the FMLA or the FFCRA or the EPSLA. So that one, one thing that you'll hear from uh, employment attorneys all the time is this alphabet soup of statutes that come out of Congress. So the, the, the Family Medical Leave Act the Families First Coronavirus Response Act and the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act. You know, FFCRA and the EPSLA were part of that suite of litigation that came out from Congress directly in response uh, to COVID-19. And especially in the early days when those things were coming out, employers were reacting in real time to uh, you know, legislation being passed, regulations and guidance being updated, sometimes uh, where, where the requirements or what was happening with regard to the statute of the regulation being unclear. So in real time, employers were reacting to that, but another species of claim that we're seeing, another trend 
is some alleged violation either of the FMLA, the FFCRA, or the EPSLA. So, for example, we're seeing a lot of allegations uh, where uh, employees allege that uh, their FMLA, an FMLA-protected leave, was interfered with, or their uh, ability to take a protected leave to care for school-aged children. That's becoming another uh, another burgeoning trend within this sort of uh, this sort of a mini trend within this trend. And then we're also seeing EPSLA claims where uh, employees allege that somehow their their paid sick leave was interfered with. We're seeing in the last couple of months we've seen a, a sort of a, an uptick, at least on the tracker, in allegations where employers or supervisors or other you know supervisory employees uh, making comments to employees about how quote you're not that sick or, or, or sort of questioning the severity or sincerity of the, the leave that the employee was, has taken or has requested. And then obviously we're seeing uh, you know litigation come from that. Another area, I guess, within the FMLA, EP, SLA, and uh, the FFCRA that we're seeing is, is where employees are, are requesting time off or paid leave pursuant to any one of those statutes. And they're given that time off and then they're terminated while they're on or allegedly terminated, excuse me, while they're on on leave or when they attempt to come back, their position uh, or an equal position is no longer available to them. You know, one thing I would say is that FMLA leave is sort of a tricky uh, thing, even in good times. And now that uh, Congress has added a number of other protections and available leave options, I think it's become even more tricky for companies to uh, ensure that they're complying. It's 100% right. The FMLA, particularly in response to, to COVID-19, has become sort of a trap for the unwary, right? If, if employers are either being, you know, not permitting leaves that are permitted or are improperly categorizing leaves that are, you know, not necessarily permitted under under one statutory regu- regulatory regime, um, it, you know, there's there's the potential for, for lots of problems. And on our, our monthly webinar that, that we give on the COVID uh, litigation tracker, we almost always feature uh, FMLA and FFCRA compliance as, as, a, as a section because it's a hot button issue for employers. And as Mark said, it, it's always been, it you know, can be tricky for employers to comply and it's even more so now. Then another trend that we're seeing a lot of, and I think this is the one, you know, th- that when we started putting together this tracker, this was a trend that we expected to be one of the biggest trends. Uh, and it, it is a, a common fact pattern, but not as common as we had thought it would be as a sort of workplace safety trend. And these are, these are the, the cases that involve sort of the the most harrowing and, 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 and tragic allegations, but also I think are the ones that are, it's probably the most accessible to the layperson and to the non, non-practitioner. And these are cases where allegations about an employer's response or lack of response to COVID-19 uh, and, and their, their, their implementation or, or lack of implementation of safety policies and, and practices. And, and the allegations are that that leads to uh, either infections, COVID-19 infections, sickness, uh, and, and death. We've seen a number of wrongful death cases um, where uh, employees allege that the employee or the employee's estate alleges that the employee contracted COVID-19 at the workplace uh, due to the employer's response or alleged response or lack of response uh, to COVID-19 and then contracted COVID-19 and, and, and passed away. We're also seeing um, the sort of take-home cases where spouses or family members are alleging that they contracted COVID-19 because from the employee the employee contracted COVID-19 due to the employer's response or lack of response uh, to COVID-19. So these are, again, this is a trend that we thought we would see a lot more of. I think it's a good indicator that employers are doing their level best and doing everything they can 
to respond to COVID-19 and to implement safety measures. It's probably also a reflection of the amount of people who are not physically on site at work as well. Um, so in some ways, it's a good thing that we're, that we're not seeing a big trend on this. We do unfortunately expect to see more of these kinds of cases with regard to, you know, as the pandemic goes on and, you know, it, Hopefully, we're hearing encouraging news about uh, vaccines coming out, et cetera, and, and places are getting some places are getting the the COVID nineteen pandemic under control. But we, we do expect to see as as the pandemic rages on, we expect to see more cases in this workplace safety area. And another type of claim that we're seeing in this workplace safety area is uh, public nuisance class actions, which which is you know interesting and, and unique to the the pandemic, um, at least as it pertains to you know the employment. Uh, realm. We've seen maybe a half dozen or so class actions that were filed um, where the plaintiffs are alleging that uh, because of conditions um, at the workplace, COVID has proliferated and has in fact caused uh, COVID-19 to spike not only in uh, the workplace, the particular workplace, but also you know, within the particular municipality and, and even county. Um, we've seen uh, certain complaints quote different data points uh, seeking to prove essentially that uh, the reason why a particular county's COVID numbers are so much higher than a neighboring county's COVID numbers is because of a particular uh, employer. You know, allegedly that employer is not doing its best or, or not doing what it's supposed to be doing based upon CDC guidance and local public health guidance to stop the spread uh, of COVID at that particular uh, plant or or office location. Uh, and that's, that's certainly something that's unique and something that we haven't seen uh, in, in the workplace realm, um, you know, prior to COVID, or at least not seen very frequently. Right. Pub public nuisance is theory or theory of relief that is not often litigated in the workplace, uh, the workplace sector. And we'll, we'll see what sort of success those, those actions have because public nuisance is a tough, uh, it's a tough claim to make for plaintiffs. And I think it is, the fact that these are being brought um, is an indication of, of the plaintiff's bar uh, becoming creative uh, with regard to uh, the sort of cause of actions that they're bringing. Um, it's also a sign that, you know, the willingness and the incentives for the plaintiff's bar to bring these class and collective actions, which is uh, the sort of cases, again, that Mark and I specialize in, in workplace class and collective actions. Um, we're also seeing that as coming up on the tracker quite a bit. Um, and, and there's sort of two different kinds of these workplace class and collective actions um, that we're seeing in the COVID sphere. One is our class and collective actions where COVID-19 is, is the feature. So uh, particularly in sort of a, a failure to pay context. So we're seeing cases alleging that class and collective actions alleging that uh, employees were purportedly not paid for time spent undergoing uh, temperature checks. And there's an, uh, you know, sort of a pre-COVID analog to these kind of cases in manufacturing and retail with sort of security bag checks on the way in and out of the workplace. And now we're seeing class and collective actions where employees are alleging that they had to undergo pre-work uh, pre screenings, temperature checks, uh, et cetera, on the way into work uh, and alleging that they spent time in line and were not probably compensated um, for that work. We also saw, that we're seeing uh, allegations about, and there's a pre-COVID pre analog to the traditional sort of donning and doffing cases that we see uh, in, in the workplace. And, and one, one kind of claim that we're seeing with regard to COVID uh, is a donning and doffing case with regard to uh, the sanitizing procedures and the, the, the putting on of protective equipment, masks, et cetera. We saw that uh, there's a case about correctional officers uh, here, in, here in Cook County alleging that uh, the correctional officers were not uh, properly paid for time spent donning and doffing um, safety equipment. But then there's the other 
species of class and collective actions. And that's where that COVID-19 is not the, the main feature of uh, those class and collective actions. Mark, do you want to talk a little about that? Sure. And those cases are particularly interesting. This is what we thought uh, we would see sort of at the beginning of this. Most often you have a plaintiff who is filing a likely a wrongful termination or some sort of a individual claim that is directly related to COVID um, and then tacked on to uh, those claims will be some sort of wage now or class and collective action. It's particularly interesting commentary, I think, on the plaintiff's bar. You can kind of envision the scenario where an individual is terminated due to some factor related to COVID and they go to a plaintiff's attorney and they're complaining about a particular issue. You know, they were terminated perhaps because of, you know, allegedly because of their age related to a COVID layoff. And the plaintiff's attorney will end up asking, okay, well, that's that's great. And we we have that claim, but tell me how you were paid. Tell me, you know, were you an exempt or a non-exempt worker? Um, and you know. Potentially, when they dig into that issue, um, they're able to find a, a violation of either the FLSA or you know, a state law analog. Practitioners in this area know uh, wage and hour laws are highly technical, and you know, employers who are not vigilant in ensuring that they're complying with these uh, oftentimes find themselves on, on you know, the wrong end of a class or collective action if it's filed under the FLSA. Uh, and so in these cases, you know, there's I, I certainly a dozen or so, I believe, on the tracker where you have an, an individual claim uh, that's a bias claim, wrongful termination claim, discrimination claim, something of something of that type. Um, and then, you know, tacked on to it seemingly unrelated is a wage now or collective action for overtime or a wage now or collective action for uh, you know, tip credit violations, for example. We've seen a number of those. Um, so it, it, it's. It's wholly unrelated, and COVID might provide some colorful background on the claim, but um, when you get down to brass tacks, really what you're seeing is the traditional uh, wage and hour collective action that you know, we've seen so much of in the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah, and that's especially true uh, with regard to um, states that have uh, statutory regimes that are, that are seen as employee favorable, particularly California, we're seeing a lot of that. And, you know, Mark and I, as practitioners in the class and collective sphere, we both, uh, we took California bar in February. I am waiting for my paperwork to uh, to come through. Mark uh, is already a, a fully licensed member of the California bar. And we're seeing on the tracker, a lot of these cases, uh, particularly in, in the sort of area that Mark was talking about, where COVID-19 maybe is the reason that, that, that a plaintiff ended up in a plaintiff's counsel's office. But then you see a class or collective tacked on, especially in California, um, and, and what we see in California is this sort of you know kitchen sink approach to these these workplace class actions, where you see not only the, the COVID nineteen individual COVID nineteen allegations, uh, but then a uh, an employee an employer wide uh, class action with regard to uh, overtime, minimum wage, meal and rest breaks, uh, wage statements, unfair business practices, the sort of everything is a very shotgun approach to pleading, um, and that's where the incentives are for plaintiffs counsel because the the uh, obviously the exposure for an employer uh, is greater, right? So employers need to be more cognizant of those and watch out for them uh, because then it's not an individual piece of litigation where you're just dealing with the plaintiff's allegations, um, which can be uh, daunting enough, but now you're dealing with a workplace-wide uh, violation. So, you know, plaintiff's counsel obviously are incentivized to bring those kinds of cases because, you know, under the FLSA, there are statutory attorney's fees. Um, under state law, some state law regimes, those, those attorney's fees apply as well. So it's a lower risk 
higher reward proposition uh, for some of these plaintiffs' counsel. And as we're seeing sort of this cottage industry uh, of COVID-19 plaintiffs' counsel uh, begin to develop, and you know, on the tracker we have some some plaintiffs' counsel who have more than 10 uh, of the cases on the tracker are the same plaintiffs' counsel. And as this develops as sort of a subspecialty for plaintiffs' counsel, we're going to see all of these offshoots, I think, um, with regard to these class and collective actions, because you know plaintiffs' counsel are going to try to they want to get the biggest bang for their buck and monetize their 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 cases as quickly as, as they can. And they do that by ratcheting up the potential exposure, both financial and, and, and PR related uh, for employers when, when an employer is, is facing some of these allegations. And there are other trends that sort of, you know, that periodically flare up or things that will, who knows why, but sometimes in a, in a particular week or a particular month, we'll see sort of a, an uptick in a particular kind of case. Um, and again, we feature those on our regular blog posts. And then again, on, on the webinar that we do every month. So, you know, if there's a particular interesting mini trend um, that's happening or a regional trend, uh, we sometimes see that. And, and regionally, that's another uh, way that we look at this is by, is by geography. And when we talk about that, you know, there, there's, some states where this is happening more than in others, and I say that in terms of both raw numbers uh, and, and per capita, the workplace, the, these workplace COVID cases are more prevalent um, in particular states. And aside from trends that we'll see develop sort of regionally or, or in, in a particular time period, those are the, the, the biggest trends that we're seeing overall now um, with regard to what employers are seeing in this, these, these COVID-19 workplace litigation. Um, and those are reflected on the tracker. and encourage you to check it out to see the, the trends that matter to you as an employer. I don't know. I might be afraid to go look at that tracker now. <laughs> uh, well, thank you both. So let's talk a little bit about how you're advising clients on how to anticipate and react to litigation when it falls on their doorstep. One of the interesting things about the COVID-19 uh, litigation is that it's, it's sort of reaffirming things that were best practices all along for employers to do. So, and, and, you know, a couple of big ticket items for employers to, to make sure they're doing um, is communication and documentation. Maintaining a good line of communication with your employees about things that are happening, uh, that helps sort of head off at the path some of these, some of these issues, um, and documentation of any decisions that you're making. Um, contemporaneous documentation with regard to an employment decision uh, for a particular employee um, is typically very good practice because then the employer has a record of what happened and why. Um, if decisions are made about a particular employee, it's critical when you're defending a case where, where there's an allegation of discrimination or some other um, improper behavior on part of the employer that the, the employer can present um, their side of the, the story and explain why a particular decision was or was not made um, in that particular case. So communication and documentation remains very, very important. And in some ways, it's it's, it's, it's almost more so important with regard to COVID-19 because, you know, th this is an area where you know, traditional wage and hour law is not an area that gets a lot of mainstream press, right? You don't often hear about, uh, you know, exempt versus non-exempt classifications or the fluctuating work week or, or piece rate uh, or meal and rest breaks. It's just not something that the mainstream media is covering, right? It's not very interesting uh, to people uh, typically. It's interesting to us as wage and hour practitioners, but it's not something that, that the, the mainstream news is talking about. But COVID-19 is something that is impacting everyone and is lighting up people's uh, people's screens and phones and, and, and computers and they're aware of it and it's constantly being talked about in the news. 
right? So now employers are dealing with a, with a population that is constantly consuming information, sometimes conflicting information, sometimes incorrect information, um, information from, from public health sources, information from, from social media, information from the news. So it highlights the importance of employers communicating what steps they're taking, what decisions they're making, how the employers are reacting to COVID-19. It also helps um, to be communicating sort of what the business is doing in terms of the business of the business, right? How are we weathering the storm? What are our plans to make sure that uh, we are going to be a, a functioning business on a go-forward basis? How are we ensuring that not only is your safety as an employee protected, but how are we making sure that um, our business remains intact and you will, are going to have a job when we all come through this uh, in a couple of months? So communication and documentation, I think, are a couple of big pillars that were always best practices and now are, are, are even more uh, important. Another thing that we're advising clients on here, too, is, is taking this, you know, I guess, opportunity to review and revise policies and practices where appropriate. Again, employment policies and practices are, are of critical importance when, you know, Pete and I defend workplace class actions just because it's it's one of the first things that plaintiff's counsel ask for is, all right, well, let me see your, you know, can you produce your handbook? Uh, what was the practice here? And one of the best ways to fight and defeat uh, either uh, collective certification or class certification is to be able to show that the um, broad company policy was compliant with wage and hour law and you know whatever discrimination law might be applicable if if, if that's what, you're, what we're dealing with. So you know, oftentimes what we advise employers is you know if they do unfortunately get hit with a a class or collective action, that is a it's a good time to review and revise policies if necessary. And the COVID-19 pandemic is sort of an analogous situation as well, where it, it's a good opportunity to go back through and make sure that the, the technical aspects of wage and hour law, whether it's state or federal law, are being complied with uh, across the board, um, not only from a policy perspective, but from a practice perspective. You know, there are a lot, of, a lot of things that go into those rules and regulations that you know, sometimes employers, despite their best efforts um, and best intentions, quite frankly, uh, overlook uh, because there are a lot of there are a lot of pitfalls that that can be fallen into, I guess, um, which you know people just don't realize. So, it, it, as far as things we advise our clients, I mean, that's another big area of what we've been doing in the last seven or eight months. Yeah, it's a very good point. This it's a great opportunity uh, for employers, the best intentioned employers who do everything they can. This is a great time to kick the tires on everything, on the handbooks, on your policies, uh, and to make sure not not only that you have compliant policies uh, and, and procedures, but that those are actually being followed. Uh, because the day-to-day -day work experience is what's going to matter for these for employers, particularly when you're facing a piece of litigation. Um, making sure that that your policies. Um, are actually being implemented on a consistent basis. Um, and obviously that's more challenging the, the bigger your operations and the, the, the higher your number of employees. Um, and it makes it more important to keep up to date on any changes that happen uh, on, on any developing uh, new litigation, new regulations, uh, et cetera. Um, you know, because they're uh, even for seasoned employers who have a you know, sort of an established um, HR function uh, and employee relations function, dealing with the changes and how they impact uh, differences in the way people need to go about doing these things. Critically important to stay abreast of those things uh, and be aware of the changes that are coming. And as far as anticipating litigation, I, I know that early on in the pandemic, one of the things that we were advising em employers uh, is with respect to the, to the COVID screenings or temperature checks that we referred to earlier on. 
we got a lot of questions about whether or not that time needed to be paid. And generally across the board, I mean, unless a unique circumstance applied, you know, our advice was, yes, you should be paying uh, employees for the amount of time that is spent in a COVID uh, temperature check or screening of, of some sort. It's it, in that situation, it was sort of, all right, better safe than sorry. We haven't seen yet any courts rule on this particular issue and whether or not um, this preliminary and post-liminary time is compensable. But, you know, you, part of what we were telling uh, our clients is you don't really want to be the test case for that either. So in, unless there was a particularly good reason uh, not to pay uh, employees for that time, it is probably best to err on the side of caution and do so. And the other thing we're advising uh, employers is, is, you know, it, this may be a time to be a, a bit more flexible than you might otherwise be, especially with regard to you know, changes that come down the pike in terms of regulations. Um, you know, it, be be a bit more flexible with regard to sort of the timing of when you get a, a leave request, or um, you know, erring on the side of of, of being more protective of employees or, or or permitting things. You know, and I say that with the caveat of, of making sure that you're not doing something that that you're that you should not be providing. But, you know, it, it, this is probably not the time to be calling footfalls um, for whether or not the, you know, the paperwork was was faxed versus emailed or, or was sent, you know, after midnight on the, on the third day, it's, those sorts of things. You know, I think it's important um, that employers recognize uh, what's going on um, and, and, and understand that everybody is dealing with this. Um, and, you know, that's, that's good practice in terms of employee relations. And also it's going to help um, you know, there's, there's no 100% guarantee, but that's going to help stave off uh, litigation rather than, you know, say, calling that footfall um, and taking some adverse employment action, um, which could result in, in, in a lawsuit over, over something that ends up not being all that consequential in terms of the, the overall employer's operations. Mark and Peter, how do you expect this to impact the future of workplace policy and litigation? It's an interesting question. Everybody's sort of scratching their heads and trying to read the tea leaves about what does this mean for the future? One of the things that we're seeing in the tracker is that the sort of workplace litigation that we were seeing pre-COVID is continuing. Now, there are, there are sort of statistical analyses that show that employment, federal filings at least, uh, in the employment sector are down. Um, but we expect to see, and then we're seeing this in the tracker, the same sorts of cases that we saw being brought pre-COVID, being brought during, and we expect to see them post-COVID. So as we mentioned, these sort of class and collective actions um, that are joined up with COVID litigations, we expect to see this wage and hour litigation continue, particularly as people are, are people are sitting at home and, as we say, consuming more media uh, and, and, and maybe being more, more ripe to go and speak to a plaintiff's counsel. We expect to see um, that sort of litigation continue. Um, Obviously, the the COVID the COVID specific litigation things under the FFCRA or, or things regarding um, a particular response to COVID um, that's going to continue. With regard to policy, that again is it, tough to predict. There's a number of areas um, where we see you know sort of nationwide or in particular states where municipalities or, or states are taking particular um, making particular responses to COVID. It's unclear whether the, uh, the, the protections under the FFCRA are going to be extended, but I, I, you know, employers obviously are going to need to 
take a good look at what's happening with regard to, to regulations and, and that come out of the state and federal governments. Um, but we're seeing, you know, sort of additional protections, and I think we can probably expect to see more of that. There are states that implemented um, particular protections for businesses, and these, these sometimes come through through statute or executive order, et cetera. Um, we're protecting businesses from liability under with regard to COVID-19 if the businesses can establish um, that they were, you know, they made good faith efforts to comply with with uh, health and safety guidelines coming from from wherever, and those you know those those protections come in a, in a variety of different forms, and, and and some are more or less protective. Um, but we may see more of that. We also saw a trend, uh, and what we think is a, is a trend, um, where you know sort of a follow-on effect of COVID-19, and this is I'm, I'm speaking specifically about Prop 22 in California. Uh, and if you don't follow California law, you know or Prop 22, they, there's a lot of uh, direct legislation by referendum uh, in California, and Prop 22. Um, was uh, a res- in some ways a response to COVID-19, and it's sort of a circuitous path. So there were there was a, a spike of litigation with regard to gig economy workers um, when COVID-19 happened, and part of the impetus for that litigation was that individuals who are classified as independent contractors don't have the same benefits under state and federal law as employees do. So one of the allegations in these cases for gig economy workers is that they were misclassified as independent contractors and purportedly should have been classified as employees. And the way that dovetailed with COVID-19 was that the, the, the bevy of protections and benefits that were afforded to employees under these COVID relief acts doesn't apply to independent contractors. So that created a new incentive for plaintiff's counsel to bring suits on behalf of gig economy workers. You saw that particularly with regard to the rideshare applications in California, where they're alleging that all of uh, they should all have been classified uh, under the new uh, new California test. It's AB. What is it, Mark? Right. So California codified uh, the ABC test in something called AB5, uh, and it didn't carve out uh, gig economy workers so that they would have to have been classified as independent contractors under that reading uh, of AB5. And then Prop 22 came out, um, and, and California specifically instituted a, uh, a carve out for gig economy workers whereby uh, they could be classified as independent contractors uh, in the event that certain, certain uh, qualifications were met. Um, Whereas under AB5, they likely would have been, uh, or at least allegedly would have been categorized as employees. So, so those are some of the areas where we're seeing uh, policy. We can probably expect to see additional protection or additional sort of leave. We think that stuff's going to come out maybe in one of these additional uh, relief bills. But Mark, do you see any other policy implications coming out? Yeah, you know, from what from a policy perspective, and, and, and I don't know if this is going to come out of Congress, probably not, but more um you know, CDC guidance and local public health uh, officials. I, you know, I think a lot of the the workplace safety and workplace um, you know, health policies are, you know, as long as uh, COVID is, is among us, um, as long as it's affecting, uh, you know, people on a day-to-day basis, I, I suspect that, you know, the, this guidance and these, you know, local orders will extended and will remain in effect. And that's that's really going to change the way um, a lot of employers deal with their workplaces on, on a day-to-day basis. And they're going to have to make sure that what they're doing is, is compliant um, with, with public health guidance and public health orders. Um, I, I really think that th- those sort of orders and, and guidance are going to be in effect probably for at least another year or so um, until this thing is under control. Uh, or we have a, a vaccine that is widely available. 
Um, and as a result of that, I, I think that you're going to continue to see, as we alluded to previously, more and more workplace safety uh, lawsuits are, are going to arise. Um, and you know, I think that that is, is somewhat unique uh, to this time and era that we're living in, um, because you know, you'll also continue to see the, the normal uh, workplace litigation that we do see, and it will be you know, oftentimes tangentially, tangentially related to COVID. Um, but, but the workplace safety, I think you're going to continue to see a, a lot of litigation um, arising specifically out of that. And then the other, with regard to workplace safety in terms of policy, um, or and how employers deal with it on on a, on a go forward basis, you know, I, I think we all recognize that one of the big things that employers have done um, in response to COVID nineteen is institute uh, remote work. So we have a lot of the workforce that's working remotely, not going physically on site. And you know, one of the follow on effects when we have the pandemic under control, when it's no longer so dangerous for people to be uh, together, and employers, some employers we've seen are, are, are choosing to remain remotely uh, for in perpetuity. They decided that that's what they want to do. Um, some employers do not want their workforce uh, working remotely for whatever reason. So when the pandemic is under control and uh, and and, and inst- employers want to institute, you know, back going back to on-site working, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with regard to uh, employees requesting accommodations and whether, you know, the argument that an employer can make with regard to whether or not remote work is or is not a, a reasonable accommodation uh, under under the ADA or under any other uh, state statute or any other regulation, um, if if indeed that employer has had remote work happening during the pandemic, um, it may be tougher to make an argument that um, you know remote work is is no longer a, a reasonable accommodation, uh, or, or whether in-person on-site work is uh, is a uh, is a necessary precondition to to employment. So we'll see what happens with regard to how the workforce the workplace excuse me looks after. The pandemic is over, uh, and 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 looking back and, and plaintiffs' counsel using that um, as an example of what should or should not be permitted uh, with regard to how the workplace looks after the pandemic is over. And that'll give rise to a you know a whole host of other issues as well, because a lot of states, uh, including Illinois, where we are, and a number of others, um, have wage payment act um, statutes in place where you know certain reimbursements need to be made for say internet that's used for, um, for work purposes or cell phones, things like that, um, you know, that, that gets us again into the wage and hour uh, litigation um, that's likely to occur as a result of the uh, work from home status. Yeah, it also makes an additional complication for employers keeping track of employees' time. Right, so the the it's difficult for an employer to know necessarily what an employee is doing and when if they're not physically on site. So it adds another layer, another potential wrinkle that employers are going to need to deal with um, with regard to, uh, to how they react to COVID nineteen. Thank you both for joining us today. This was super informative, and I really look forward to having a discussion again in six or seven months. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. Uh, and again, I encourage you to check out that. I know you're scared to look at it, but please check out the tracker so you can see what's, what's happening. I will. I'm going to bookmark it as soon as we get off this call. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Kristen.